0: Hello and welcome to Equipping the Saints. I'm Ryan and thank you for joining us today. We're going to do something a little different today, and this is something that I intend to do for the rest of the year in preparation for what I'm about to tell you. We are going to read the Bible again in a year, and I think that it's important that we establish a few things before we get into that study, primarily to test to see if our faith is legitimate. And secondly, how do we actually study the Bible? So this is going to be a more informal study of Scripture, and for those that attend Sunday school in your own church, this may feel familiar to you. But I think that it's important to read the Bible in this way, because this is how we typically interact with God. This is how we typically understand what is being said in the text itself, rather than trying to prepare a sermon or all these cross-reference notes. Let's just see what Scripture says for itself. And so what I wanted to do was start in perhaps my favorite book of the Bible, which is the book of James. What I like about the book of James is that James is very straightforward and no-nonsense when it comes to our interaction with God. He argues a strong case for true religion. And so what he does throughout the entire book is show us the fakeness that we have in our religion so often, and he points us to the real God of the Bible and the real reason why we call ourselves Christians. What I find very interesting about this book is that he does not reference Jesus very much in here. And in fact, he doesn't explain any of the things that Jesus did while he was walking the earth, despite being his half brother. Things like the cross and redemption and the Messiah coming into the world. James doesn't talk about any of that. But instead, it's as if he already knows that's been established, and he wants to go deeper. The depth of the human soul is what you experience in your religion real? Or is it something that you have propped up for yourself as an idol? And so there are a series of tests that he describes throughout his book, as well as evidences of your faith. Now, before we get into it, let me establish a little bit of context for the reading today. James is writing his epistle to, like it says in verse 1, the twelve tribes in the dispersion. So he's talking to Jews that have become Christians, and they are part of what we call the dispersion, meaning that they are the ones that were scattered throughout the world. If you read the book of Acts, you can see that happening in real time, where the oppression of the Roman Empire and the Jews that do not believe in Christ are forcing the Jewish Christians to go abroad. And that is how. God primarily chose to spread the gospel throughout the nations around Israel. So this letter is addressed to them, and by extension, us today as a church. So a primary factor of what James is going to describe to these Jewish Christians is to take religion beyond the intellectual. Take it into a personal and spiritual journey. And ultimately, take a good look at your own life. Does your life look anything like what the Bible has been describing this whole time? And that's why I like James so much, because he tells it to you like it is. He doesn't pull any punches. And it's beautiful to see how we need to look ourselves in the mirror and be honest with ourselves. So, this is something that we certainly cannot ignore in how he approaches this. We need to be that honest with ourselves, and we need to be that transparent with ourselves to see us as we actually are. And so, as a result, I am very excited to read this with you in great detail. So, let's go ahead and get started. We're going to read today from James chapter 1, beginning with the first 12 verses, and we'll take it from there. As we do this, I encourage you to. Take your copy of the Bible, whether it's on paper, which is preferred, or electronic, and follow along. Don't just listen to me. I'm just a guide, but the Spirit himself is the teacher. The Word of God is what has the power. So let God speak to you, rather than you just listen to me. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. James, a bondservant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, Let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with the scorching wind, and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Okay, so now we have established a context. Who is he addressing this letter to? And now we have read the actual content of the letter. So let's now dissect the scripture piece by piece, verse by verse, in order to uncover any truth that the Lord wants to reveal to us today. So James is calling himself a bond servant of God. Now, what I find interesting and kind of sad is that in the original Greek, the word here for bond servant is actually the word doulos, which is slave. A bond servant is not the same thing as a slave. A bondservant is more of what we would call an indentured servant, someone who willingly became a slave in order to pay off debt or to earn a wage. But a slave is an involuntary slavery. This is something that happened to you outside of your control. And this is the actual wording of the Greek, the word doulos, slave. So, the proper way to say this would be a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is documented and well known within Christian circles that the Bible purposely translated it bondservant so it would not be offensive to an American audience. As you well know, we have slavery in our history, and none of us are proud of it, I would think. But The reality is that it actually happened, and so we do not want to equate what the Bible calls slavery with the kind of slavery that we had here in the Americas. The slavery that's in the Bible is not the same thing as we saw there in most cases, but either way, it dishonors our Lord to translate something inappropriately to change the meaning of something in order to avoid being offensive. If we know anything about the Bible, the Bible is very offensive to those who are sinners, and it should offend us and cause us to remember what has happened in our history, and not embrace it by any means, but to not forget where we've come from and where we're going. But beyond that, let me say this. It is completely acceptable for a Christian to call himself or herself, a slave of God. Why is that okay? Well, because your calling into salvation was not from you. You did not contribute to your own salvation, if you believe what the Bible says. God called you into salvation. He regenerated and transformed you, and has now justified you in the name of Christ. So you did not do anything to get saved. So before, you were a slave of Satan. You were a slave of the world, and you were not able to change that destiny. But when God saved you, he called you to himself, and therefore you have a new allegiance and new ownership. Much like in our American history, there was a market for people to purchase slaves as if they were property. God purchased us with the blood of Christ, and we are now his property. We are his slaves. And so we have to understand this dynamic between us and God. We don't have an equal relationship with Jesus Christ. He is still our master, and we have to be obedient to our master in the same kind of way as a Roman slave would be, not like the American slave was, but like the Roman slave was. So that is a distinct parallel that we need to identify with, not the American slave, but with the Roman slave, and it's a completely different dynamic. So James starts off by saying that he is a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows full well that he was an unbeliever when Christ walked the earth. We see him multiple places throughout Scripture with his brothers, and they don't believe Jesus really is the Messiah. They think he's crazy. They don't deny that he can do miracles, and they want to exploit him for that in order to gain fame or fortune, or whatever it may be. But they recognize that he is different, but yet he is not God. That is, until he rose from the grave, And he revealed himself to James. Scripture specifically says that he showed himself to James in person, one on one, and that experience transformed James into a completely new person. Now, we don't know if James was present at Pentecost, but it wouldn't be so far fetched to imagine that he was. But regardless, he became a changed man after his encounter with Christ, and he fully embraces and believes that his own half-brother was the Son of God. And as we get to the end of verse 1, and we see who his audience is, he has a very short introduction, doesn't he? When you read the letters of Paul, Paul has the longest run-on sentences and beautiful openings and such wonderful things to say to these people that he's addressing before he gets into the content of his message. But James doesn't waste any time. He just simply says, Hi, and you need to know this. And what does he say? The very first thing to come out of James's mouth is, Have joy when you're encountering trials. That seems kind of an odd way to start a message, isn't it? Well, not really. Because these people who are Jewish Christians are in the middle of what is called the dispersion. They are being separated from each other. They are being spread throughout the known world at that time. So it's not so far-fetched to think that they feel like they're in trials, right? They know that they're being challenged, and their lives are not easy. But what he does is he tells them to experience joy in the trials. He's not the first one to say that, and he's not going to be the last either. But Why should we be joyful in trials? Before we answer that question, let's be clear that this is talking about the Christian life, not talking about whatever hardships you have in your own life, whether they're your own doing or not. It is talking about the burden of being a Christian. So often we abuse this. There's so many times that we have a hardship in our life, or we have a difficult person in our life, or we have a situation that just is inconvenient for us. And I hear this so often, and it irritates the heck out of me. This is my cross to bear. Oh, this is the Lord burdening me. How foolish we are to think that. This has nothing to do with what James is talking about here. The trials that James is referring to are trials of affirming and being outspoken and living the Christian life. This is not just talking about the inconveniences in our spoiled existence. This is talking about we share the gospel with somebody and they hate our message and they want to cause harm to us, or they say insults to us, or they persecute us for what we believe. This is the kind of trials that he's talking about here. Any other trials outside of that are irrelevant to this argument. When it comes to being steadfast and outspoken as a Christian, what you believe, who Jesus Christ is, the urgency of the gospel— We should experience joy in that. Think about in the book of Acts, when Peter and another disciple were thrown into prison for speaking the gospel. The Jewish leaders told them not to do it, and they ended up throwing those two guys in prison, and they rejoiced when they were thrown into prison. Why? Not because they liked going to prison. Prison is not a good place to go but they understood that what they were doing was pleasing God. They understood they were doing it right because they were being challenged. Jesus prepared them for this very thing. There were times that he said that, don't be surprised if the world hates you, because the world doesn't hate you, it hates me, and they're just going to take it out on you. So they understood and were able to draw those two things together And it was almost like a confirmation that they were doing the right thing. They were doing their job as Christians. How many of us today can say that? How many of us can say that we are experiencing trials because we are doing what is proper as a Christian? What is expected of us from the Bible? I don't think many of us can if we were being really honest with ourselves. But if we are doing the right thing, we will experience trials and they should not surprise us. Instead, we should consider it all joy. Why? Why should we have joy in trials? It says why right here. The testing of your faith produces endurance. So the more that you are challenged in your faith, and the more you resist sin, The more that it intensifies your need to share the gospel, the desire to be holy, you are undergoing what is called spiritual discipline. You are getting calluses on your soul, a good kind of callus. When you work with your hands, you get calluses. Your skin gets rougher and thicker in certain areas to adapt to the kind of work that you're doing. You take a look at somebody's hands, and you can tell what kind of work that they do. I used to have calluses on my hands for my previous job, because it was a lot of manual labor, and my hands showed the evidence of the kind of work that I did. Now that I'm more of a leader now than I am a worker, my hands have softened over the years. So unfortunately, some of these calluses have gone away. This is a physical kind of callus, but when it comes to the spiritual calluses, this is maturity. This is spiritual discipline, and when we have our faith tested, it will cause us to grow in endurance. It won't hurt as much the next time. The insults that people throw at us won't hurt as much. We will be more loving and forgiving of the people because they don't know what they're doing. Do you see the difference? And best of all, you won't want to run away when things get hard. This is extremely important, right? We don't want to turn tail and hide in our comforts and in our sins when things get tough. We need to run to God, and God has promised that He would be sufficient for us when times are hard. So the best way to tell if you are spiritually disciplined and you have endurance is think about when things are hard. Where do you run when times get tough? Do you stick close to God? Do you go into prayer more often when you're in trials? Do you crack open your Bible and study? Or do you binge on Netflix? Do you binge on ice cream? Do you look at all the things that you should have left behind from your dark past? Only you know the answer to that, but this is evidence of where you are in your growth. And if you're making a mistake, okay, you will come back to God. God will restore you. But we don't want to go back to that again. We want to learn the lesson and become more mature. What James is showing us in verse 4 is, is that this endurance is supposed to create something in us. It is supposed to have a perfect result. It is something that will be a result of some kind, but it will always produce something positive. And what is he saying here it will produce? A perfect and complete person that lacks in nothing. Let's be very careful how we understand this. We are not going to be literally perfect, okay? We know that. There is no way that we can be perfect while we are mortal on this planet. But what it is saying is that you will be perfect in maturity, and that you will be fully developed. That's what it means to be complete, to be fully developed in your growth and in your spiritual discipline, so that you will indeed lack nothing. You will have all the tools in your toolbox available to you, and you'll know exactly how to use every tool. Scripture says that when you become saved, you have all that is needed to fulfill the ministry of the Holy Spirit. From the moment of salvation, God gives you everything you need in order to bring salvation to someone else. You don't need to be an expert of the Bible. You don't need to go to a special bible school in order to do the job. You have everything you need from the beginning. You are fully equipped at the moment of salvation by the holy spirit himself. You may not even know what is in your toolbox, and you may not even know what tools are available to you or how to use them, but they're there. And what God simply demands from us is obedience. He demands us to study, to grow, and to be obedient to him. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience is better than religion. And James is going to bring this topic up many times during this study. Now, he jumps into verse 5 by saying that if you lack any wisdom, ask God, and he will give it to you. This is assuming, in verse 4, that Wisdom is part of this perfect result. Does that make sense? But in verse 5, he makes a promise to us. He says that if you lack wisdom, ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. That term will. If you're one of those people who underlines or highlights things in their Bible, underline that word. Will, because that is a promise that is being made here. If you ask God for wisdom, He will give it to you. Guaranteed, He'll give it to you if you meet the conditions. And what condition is that? He must ask in faith without any doubting. You must believe that God is able to give you wisdom and that it is not too hard for him, and that the wisdom will benefit you in some way. If you have doubts in what God can do, what's the point of asking him at all? Well, Lord, I'm not sure if you can do this or not, but I'm just going to throw this prayer out there and hope for the best. You may not realize how insulting that is to God, in having reservations or doubts that he is able to do something. Now, what kind of wisdom are we talking about here? We're talking about wisdom that accomplishes the will of God. Not what we want, but what God wants. God gives wisdom abundantly and graciously when we ask. But the catch is that we have to ask in faith without any doubting. Why should God give you wisdom if you don't believe he can? So that's why James uses this illustration here in the second half of verse 6. He must ask in faith without any doubting. Why? For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. When I read this, it reminds me of what Jesus said about a man building a house, right? One man builds his house on the rock, and the house stands, no matter what. But when he builds his house on the sand, it falls apart, and its fall was great. I see a direct parallel to that in here, because it's the same root problem. The surf of the sea is in both of those stories. The waves tossing around this house, or beating up against the house. What is the significance of these waves? Well, the waves are our flesh in many ways. The temptations of this world, the things that we put our faith in outside of God, the sin that exists within all of us, the lack of trust in God, all of these things are unstable. They are beaten up against us all the time. We got these temptations and these pressures in the world that constantly are hitting up against us and testing our faith, testing the foundation of our house. And if we aren't in the right place, we will be devastated. Our house will fall and be torn apart. So the surf of the sea is powerful. It's unpredictable, and it's being tossed around by the wind, the new thing that is in the culture today, the new version of the same sin that has been repeating throughout history. Nothing is new under the sun, according to Solomon. So we have this worldly power that is trying to drive a wedge between us and God. And if we are listening to that voice, listening to that influence, we're not trusting that God is going to fulfill what we ask. That's not complete faith if we doubt God can do it or doubting if he even exists? Why would you pray to someone if you don't even think they exist? So that's why verse 7 makes sense, right? For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. You really think God is going to honor your prayer if you don't believe him, or you believe in him? So James doesn't pull any punches here, right? He just tells you straight up, don't expect an answer from God if you don't believe that he can do it. Why? Because by thinking this way, he's calling us a double minded man. And a double minded person is, as he says here, unstable in all his ways. There is no stability. If we are double minded, we will be tossed around all the time. So, what does it mean to be double minded? A double minded person is, if you want to take the text literally, in the Greek, it means a man of divided allegiance. You hold allegiance to God and someone or something else at the same time. There are competing powers in your mind and in your soul. Whether that power is you, yourself, propping yourself up to be some someone of self-importance or Thinking that you don't need God all the time? Or perhaps we are letting the world tell us that it's okay to love God and to love something else at the same time. Jesus talked about that specific thing. What did he say about having two masters? You can't have two masters because you will love one and hate the other. You, they don't coexist. There's no way to synergize having two masters there's no way to have complete communion with two different influences that are quite frankly polar opposites everything of the world is an enemy of god and if we say we love god but yet we follow the patterns of this world we're lying to ourselves we don't love god and in fact we aren't giving him everything of what we are so it shouldn't surprise us if god does not answer our prayers and we recognize what James is saying here. It should penetrate our souls and give us insight if we are truly double-minded, of divided allegiance, or if we are all in with God. And if we are all in with God and we ask him for wisdom, he will give it to us. This is a remarkable comfort that we can't take for granted here. And this really should be an eye to our own soul. Where are we at? Are we here? Are we fully invested in the things of God? Or are we distracted? Are we trying to make the world work with God, or trying to fit both into one package? It doesn't work. It never will. Take it from somebody like me who fights with that all the time. The world constantly tries to insert itself into my life, my sins of my past, as well as the temptations and addictions that I struggle with daily, they try to come back all the time. And they are not my friends, and they are not supporting what God has for me. Every time I give in to them, they lead me away from him. So why would I want to try to stick with God and stick with things that drive me away from him. It just simply does not mix. It's like oil and water. They don't mix. And yet so often we fool ourselves into thinking that we can mix them. And it's very wrong to think that way. So instead of being double-minded, what is James telling us in verse 9? What should we do instead? We should be people of humble circumstances and we are to glory in our high position. If we are people of humble circumstances, meaning that we do not have material wealth, we are supposed to glory in our high position. At a glance, that seems like a contradictory statement. But what he's talking about is the spiritual wealth that we have, instead of the material wealth. People of humble circumstances recognize and appreciate Things more because money's not in the way. So we are to glory in our high position of who we are in Christ. We are his chosen people, a royal priesthood. We have such wondrous promises and inheritances waiting for us in heaven. We are to recognize what we have been rescued from and what we are called to in his salvation. It is most glorious. But then, in contrast, in verse 10, we have the rich man who is glorying in his humiliation. And what he's pointing out here is the futility of riches. This illustration about being like grass is used multiple times in Scripture to show how finite our lives are, as well as how finite the ends of wealth can lead us. Wealth can only buy so much, and it can't buy things of eternal value or of spiritual value. Wealth can only get you so far, and at the end, it's not going to save your soul from hell. So, like he says here, it will be like grass with flowers on it. It looks so gorgeous. But when the heat comes, when trials come, as well as when the end of our lives approach, we're just going to fade away. We're just going to fall apart, and the wealth is not going to sustain us. This is what it is like for a rich man to be in the midst of his pursuits, meaning that it's all about him. It's all about what he wants to do. It's all about what money can do for him. And at the end, it's going to accomplish nothing of significant value. So then lastly, James brings us back to his original statement when it comes to the trials. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. Again, that's the goal, to create endurance in us. So if we endure the trials, we are blessed. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. This is interesting. Once we withstand the test that is in front of us, we will receive a crown of life. There are several crowns described in Scripture, but there is definitely a reward of some kind at the end of it. And it says that we will receive this crown of life, and the best description of what this crown of life is, is eternal life, right? one of the rewards for being a Christian is to have eternal life. If there is indeed legitimacy in your faith, you will persevere through trials, not by any action of your own, but through God who will sustain you through it. This is a test of if your faith is legitimate or not. This is the difference between being religious and and being a born-again child of God. When trials come, you will not always win. You will not always be successful. You are still a human being. You will make mistakes. You will slip at times. But is there notable growth in you over the years? Is there proof in your life that when the trials come, you are enduring them? not necessarily by your own strength, but through your dependence on God and in obedience to his word. This is an evidence of true Christianity in the world. So this is the purpose of trials. The purpose of trials is to make us heavenly-minded, not to lead us away from God, but to lead us more to him and to understand the dependency that we have with him. We, as Christians, need to understand that we have little to no control over any circumstance in our life. The world fools itself to think that we have control of our destiny, when in fact, the reality is that God is sovereign over everything and we have basically no control over anything. So, why wouldn't we want to run to the one who does have control of everything the Lord God Himself? So, I hope you enjoyed this first look at the book of James because there's going to be many more deep, penetrating topics that are going to be talked about here. And I felt it was important to go through this to help us to recognize before we start reading the Bible in a year, where are we at? Where do we need to grow? Are we consciously aware of our salvation? Or is it smoke and mirrors? Is it a facade? Is it a house of cards? Only you know. But my sincere prayer is that through this journey, if you have not experienced the goodness of God and salvation through Jesus Christ, I hope you find it. I hope you discover who God is in a more personal, impactful way, whether you're saved or not. But my hope is that through here, through the Word of God, you can be saved because it is able to do that. It is able to save your soul. So I hope you enjoyed this more informal study of the Word of God, which is one of my favorite things to do, and I look forward to our next encounter in God's Word. But until then, thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.